If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 9, a very familiar story. The, the man who was blind uh, and Jesus and his encounter with him. We're talking about experiencing God. The crisis of belief. The crisis of belief. Now, what is a crisis of belief? I looked this up in, the, in, in Wikipedia, on Wikipedia, and this is what it says. Periods of intense doubt and internal conflict about one's preconceived belief or life decisions. Period of intense doubt or internal conflict about one's preconceived belief or life, uh, or, or life decisions. Uh, it's a gut check. Have you ever had a gut check? How many of you have ever gone off a high dive, uh, high dive into a, a, a swimming pool? You ever stood up on a high dive? That's a, that's a crisis of belief. I, am I going to kill myself? Am I going to go forward? Am I going to splat? And is it going to hurt really bad? Uh, you know, there's all kinds of crisis of, of uh, belief. There's all kinds of times when, when your faith is kind of checked just a little bit. I have people who love me so much. I had a birthday not that long ago, uh, like last week, and I had somebody send me this email. Happy birthday, it says. You know you've had a bad day on your birthday when you see a 60 Minutes news team waiting for you in your office. You know you've had a bad day on your birthday when your birthday cake collapses under the weight of the candles. You know you've had a bad day on your birthday when your income, t- check, your income tax check bounces. You know you've had a bad day on your birthday when your twin brother or sister forgets your birthday. You know you've had a bad day on your birthday when the bird singing outside your window is a buzzard. That's the kind of people who love me on my birthday to send me those cheerful notes. And, and what, what the card basically said is, every birthday is a crisis of belief. Am I going to live another year? The truth is we don't know, do we? And there's a crisis of belief that comes in, and sometimes it's a good crisis, sometimes it's a bad crisis. Did you know you can have a crisis of belief that's a, that's a good crisis? You don't believe, some of you look at me like you don't really believe that. I can give you a great example. Cake or pie? It's a crisis of belief. Which, how many of you are cake people? Raise your hand. You love cake more than anything. How many of you are pie people? Raise your hand. Some of you raise your hand twice. That's not, that's not what it was all about. Okay, you just, you just, yeah, Smokey's got both hands going, yeah. Are you offering, Pastor? There's a crisis of belief that comes to every believer who follows Jesus Christ because there will, be, there will come a time when you stand there and you have to decide for sure what you really believe about who Jesus Christ is. And Hebrews 11.6 warns us about that. In fact, it, it promises without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Without faith it is impossible to please God. It's this crisis of belief, it's this faith that he brings us to that that really God uses in a powerful way. The Lord uses a crisis of belief to teach us dependence on him and and to experience him in a new and a deep and and, and more amazing way. That's what God has called us to do, and that's what what experiencing God is all about. And, And here's a great example of this. There's a man who has a crisis of belief. Jesus comes into his life, and you say, oh, this is so dramatic. The truth is, everybody involved in this story, other than Jesus, had a crisis of belief. Look at John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, because God's assignments, God's going to give you an assignment, and it brings you to a crossroad. You know what a crossroad is. You, you come up, and, and, and you have to decide to go right or left, and you don't know which way to go. You're at a crossroad. You don't have GPS. You don't have Siri talking to you in your ear. You don't have a map there. You just have to decide, and the Lord says, which way you're going to go. 
John chapter 9, verse 1 through 7, just the, the simple story. As he went along, that's Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, you need to understand in Jewish thought, anytime there's any illness, any suffering, anything that comes into a person's life, sin is involved. In, in fact, Rabbi Ami says there's no death without sin. Every time somebody dies, it's because somebody sinned, and there's no suffering without iniquity. There's no suffering ever that's not caused by something wrong that you've done in your life. That was the, the Jewish thought of the day. Now, go back again. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Literally, the Greek is smeared it. He smeared it across his face, across his eyes. Now, the guy's blind, but he's not deaf. And he hears the Lord go, I'm sorry, he has to get some spit up. That's what you do when you're a guy and you're getting spit ready to go. And he hears this, and he hears this, and then he hears this stuff, and all of a sudden there's mud in his eyes. And what are you thinking? Who is this, and what is he doing to me? But look at what it says. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. It's an Aramaic word and literally means scent. They have uncovered this. It's at the base of the city of, of David. It's an amazing place to, to visit. We went the last time we were in Israel. We're going to do it again next year. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. It's such a simple story. Jesus came, saw the man, the disciples question him, he spits on some, on some dirt that's there, makes it into a little mud ball, rubs it across his eyes. The man does what Jesus asked and he comes back seeing. But is, that, is it that simple? If it were you, what would you do? If you're a beggar, you're already sticked out your place at the gate. You're a beggar, you've been there for years, and you're thinking, what am I supposed to do now? What would you do? Would you go? And there's also a crisis of belief because the disciples are there. Look at three things we see from this. Number one, God's assignments are often impossible on our own. God's assignments are often impossible on our own. You see, the issue that the disciples raised, who sinned, it's an impossible situation. This man was born blind. Did he, did he sin in the womb? Did he sin before he was born? Of course not. That can't possibly be. I mean, what, what an absurd question. So... The Lord says to him, neither this man nor the parents, you guys have got it all wrong. He's, he's forcing them, go back to that definition, there are periods of intense doubt and internal conflict because they have a preconceived belief. Jesus said it's neither one. Nobody sinned. This is for my glory. God had this plan. This man was born blind so that one day when I walked by the temple, I could show you who I am. And you say, is that really what he's saying? That's exactly what he's saying. And it's a crisis of belief for the, for the disciples. It, you think about this. Because what's happened with the disciples? You know, the disciples have watched Jesus over a period of time, and they've seen all kinds of things that he's done. And they have to, to decide what they believe. It's also a crisis of belief for this blind man. 
He's been blind since birth. Somebody smearing mud on his eyes is not likely to change anything. But what other options did he have? If you're blind, what other options? I mean, let's talk about spiritual blindness, not physical blindness for a minute, because that's really the, the analogy that's there. If you're spiritually blind, can you just try harder? And if you're good enough, God will heal you of your spiritual blindness. If you're spiritually blind, can you, can you join a church or, or be baptized? Is that what takes it away? No. You come to the cross. You come to the one who died for your sins, and he is the one that can take that impossible situation away. Just as physically, that blind man couldn't do anything to get, regain his sight. There was nothing he could do. Jesus is trying to point out to the disciples, listen, just, just as real as this physical uh, blindness is, you have a spiritual blindness. You don't see who I am. He needed God to intervene. At one point, the disciples come to Jesus, and Jesus is teaching, and, and the, the rich young ruler comes to him, and, and he turns away when the Lord says to him, listen, you're depending on your wealth. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come back, and we'll talk, because you're depending, your faith is in your wealth. And, and he goes away very sad. And, and Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples say, then who can be saved? Who, you know, it's easier for a camel. And there, there have been all kinds of, of people who have speculated on this. Oh, there was this gate called the eye of the needle. And if the camel got on his knees and he would walk through the, uh, the eye of the needle and that's how he could get through. It's only as, when he got down on his knees. Th- that's a wonderful story. It's absolutely not true, but it's a wonderful story. There is no gate called the eye of the needle. I think Jesus is walking along and somebody's sewing a tent and they had these big long needles and they had a, an eye, a huge eye on it because they would put yarn through it. And so there was a, a pretty good size eye on this needle and they're doing the tent and as they're doing that Jesus says it's easier you see that camel over there that full-size camel it's easier for that camel to get through that eye of the needle than for somebody to come to me it's impossible God's assignments are often impossible on our own Matthew 19 26 when he they asked that who can be saved Jesus looked at them and said with man this is impossible but with God all things are possible we're broken We cannot get to God. We are flawed. One of my favorite comedians of all time is Bob Newhart. Do you all know who Bob Newhart is? He had the old Bob Newhart show, and then he had this little inn. I don't remember what it it was, another Bob Newhart show. But he he was always this psychologist in the first show. And he had a man, and he he went home to his wife that night, and he said, this guy's driving me crazy. And and he he has all of these, you know, he's just this and that, and he's, you know, he he just can't do anything right. And I give him a simple assignment, he messes it up. He can't talk to his wife, he can't go to his work. He's just impossible. And his wife says, maybe he has an inferiority complex. And Bob Newhart says, and I quote, listen, he does not have an inferiority complex. He really is inferior. Don't you love to have that as your therapist? That's your counselor. He really is inferior. And the truth is, we don't have an inferiority complex. We really are inferior. We cannot get to God on our own. It's an impossible assignment. Number two, God's assignments reveal what we believe about God. They'd, they'd witnessed incredible miracles. The water turned into wine is the first miracle in John, and, and then it's followed up by healing a, a, a boy who is critically injured, and then a man at, at the pool of Bethesda that's been sick for 38 years, and then the feeding of 5,000 men plus their families, maybe as many as 20,000 men that he's fed, and then Jesus is walking on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of this storm, and then he pulls Peter out of the boat and walks with him, and then they get back in the boat, and the, and the storm is calmed. Do you understand, by the time they get to this place, 
place, Jesus has done some amazing things. And not one of the disciples says, when they see this man born blind and they come to him and they begin to question him, Peter doesn't say, hey, Lord, you did that whole thing with the water into wine. You did the walking on the water. You know, I walked with you on water. If you could do that, why don't you give this guy sight? Not a single person said that. Not a single disciple. It, was a, it, it reveals what we really believe about God when we get in that crisis, when we get that assignment. At the feeding of 5,000, Jesus says to the disciples in Matthew 14, 16, you give them something to eat. 5,000 men and all of their families, this whole hillside is full of these people. 15, 20,000 people are sitting there, and, and he says to the disciples, hey, Steve and Jackie Rika, you guys give them something to eat. Bob and Marion Fletcher, you guys get down there in the kitchen. Would you cook them up a little something to eat? And you say, well, that's not, that's not possible. We have four brand new commercial ranges. We have a huge commercial kitchen. But they couldn't do it because they didn't, they'd, they'd have to do it with one sack lunch, five loaves and two fishes. It's impossible. And the disciples didn't know what to do. And the, the assignment for the blind man? Go wash at the pool of Siloam. I mean, somebody else must have had water. They didn't go anywhere without water. Why didn't they just take one of the bags of water that they had with him? Why didn't they take that skin of water and just wash off his face? Why did he have to go to Siloam? Because that's God's assignment. Would we go? We're critical of, of others, but would we go? Would we say, Lord, I have a better idea. Here's a faucet right over here. Lord, I have a better idea. I don't want to do this assignment. L- let, me just, let me just wipe my eyes good. You know, the, the mud, it's hardly in there. Okay, is that okay? Is that good enough? And the Lord says, no, go to Siloam. Go wash. We just don't get it. We have a better idea. In, in the Indeed magazine, uh, the devotional that we have on May 21st, who do we say he is, Jesus Christ? Better, perhaps an even better question would be this. Who do we really deep in our hearts believe Jesus Christ is? We must go beyond the pew and the pulpit and into our living rooms and offices for the answer. We must ask if this is true for us Wednesdays just as it is on Sundays. We must come down from the mountaintop and answer from the valleys. Why? Because regardless of how long we have been Christians, this answer must be more than theology in our heads. It must be truth that grips our hearts. When your situation is dire, a relationship is broken, finances are are impossibly bleak, a disease is pronounced incurable, or tragedy strikes a loved one, who is he? Who is God? Who is Jesus Christ? Is he a theological tenet or really your savior, your provider, your healer, your friend? When you're tempted beyond your strength, immoral desires are running rampant, an ethical compromise would seem so easy, you're pressured to conform to the world's expectations. Who is God? An ancient biblical character or your righteousness, your strength, your refuge? Know him in your innermost being. Jesus doesn't help us much as a center of our theology. Jesus helps us as the center of our lives. Those are powerful words. Who is this one? God's assignments reveal what we really believe about who God is. 
We're so critical of others in, in, the, in the Bible. I, I mean, you think of all the ones, David and Moses and Abraham, and, and God gave them an assignment. You, you remember in Moses' assignment? Moses, for 40 years, wanted to do the right thing, and then he kills an Egyptian, then he runs from the Lord for 40 more years. He's out in the wilderness, 80 years old, and God says, it's time for your assignment. How many of you are 80 or older? Raise your hand. Some of you are afraid to, very afraid to at this point. Okay, God's ready for your assignment. And this assignment's going to be 40 years long, he says. He doesn't tell him that up front, but it ends up being 40 years plus. And it's going to involve a couple million people. You're going to be their leader. And Moses sees this burning bush. You remember the story? He's in the wilderness. He sees the burning bush. And the Lord says, take your sandals off. Even a quarter inch is too high right now. You need to, to understand that you're standing in the presence of holiness. And when Moses says to him, who should I say sent me? What's your name, God? He says, Yahweh, I am has sent you. Before Abraham was, I am, Yahweh, has sent you. And the Lord says, I'm going to make you my spokesperson. And what, is Moses, and what does Moses say to the Lord? No, 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 no. I don't do public speaking. I'm not good at public speaking. In fact, people ask me not to do public speaking. So, Lord, that's, thank you so much. I appreciate that offer. Do you have something else? Maybe I could serve in the nursery. You know, maybe I could serve somewhere else. And the Lord says, no, you're going to be my spokesperson. Who made your mouth? And finally, it comes out down to Exodus 4, 12 and 13. The Lord says, now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, oh, Lord, please send someone else to do it. We would never say that, right? All power is given to me. So go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Well, <clears throat> yeah, I know, Lord, but, you know, I, that, that's about witnessing. I don't do witnessing. I, you know, people have heard me witness and say, I don't need to do witnessing. Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, he says in Acts 1.8. He's given us the assignment, and you say, but that's different. No, it's not. What? God assigns us, reveals what we believe about God. Here's the third one. God's assignments display God's work in our lives. Why send the blind man to the pool of Siloam? Because he saw people on the way there and on the way back. People watched him at the pool of Siloam wondering how in the world a blind man got his eyes full of mud. People were there coming and going. And they had to ask, what's that mud on your face? What's, I don't know. This guy's, you know, he's, he came in, he has disciples. They called him rabbi. I don't know who he is, but he spit on the ground. And I know this is gross, but then he rubbed the, the spit around, made mud, and he put it in my eyes. I don't know, but, but he told me to wash my eyes. And just about the time he's washing his eyes, and he sees light for the first time. And he looks up, and he says, I can see. I I've been blind all my life. I can see. Do you understand for the first time he knows, he knows what the color red is? He knows what yellow is. He sees water. And can you imagine him splashing water and going, this is awesome. I can see. Where's my family? Where's my mother? Where's my father? I've never seen their face. I, I can see. Do you understand this man? He came to me. I can see. Can you see this guy all the way from the pool of Siloam running back up the hill to go to the temple? Where, who, who's the guy? Where is the guy? Where is he? I, I was blind, but now I can see. We don't get that from this story. We just kind of, we just look at it theologically. Henry Blackaby says, people in our community watching our church are waiting to see what God can do, not necessarily what we can do on our own. 
in the book of Zechariah. It's a prophecy of the end time, but this is what it says, Zechariah 8.23. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those, ten, in those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you, because we have heard that God is with you. Folks, let me tell you what, I have a dream. I've had a dream for this church since day one, and here's my dream. That God's love, his power, his life among us is so obvious It's so contagious, it's so compelling that people clamor to find out what God is doing right here at Crosspoint. I'm not talking about huge miracles. I'm not talking about stuff falling down from heaven. I'm talking about the life, the love, the power of God evident in our lives so that we love when we we don't know that we could love on our own, so that we see families being brought back together, marriages healed, finances taken care of. I I have a dream of, of being a pastor for a group of people like that, that people say, we want to be a part of that group. Wow, they serve an amazing God. Not, oh, wow, what an amazing church. What an amazing building. What amazing grounds. No, what an amazing God they serve. God's assignments bring us to a crossroad. And and here's the second part of it. God's assignments provide an incredible choice. An incredible choice. John chapter 9, verses 24 to 38. You have some choices. Once you come to that crossroad, you're going to have to make some choices. Look at the choices this man made. A second time they summoned the man, the, the religious leaders of that day, the Pharisees, the religious leaders who didn't really believe that Jesus had any power. They summoned him. They summoned the man who'd been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. Verse 25, he, he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. I love this. Look at this line. I love this logic. One thing I know, I was blind and now I see. Really hard to refute that. Let's argue about that. You know, you, you can say well, what you want to about Jesus Christ. Here's the one thing I know. I was blind. I'm not anymore. I can see. Verse 26, then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? And then look at that little word there, two. You know what he's saying? I just realized I'm his disciple. I just realized I'm going to go for this guy because I was blind and now I can see. You want to, you want to join in, in with me? Come on, let's go. Let's, let's have the new school of we're for this rabbi. He doesn't even know who he is yet. Verse 28, then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. Now listen to this. As he's talking through this, his faith is just growing leaps and bounds. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. Do you understand in the Old Testament there's not a single time when a blind man is healed? In the New Testament, up to this point, we never hear of a man who is blind, who is healed. Verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. What are they saying? You sinned before you were ever born. They're going back to the same argument the disciples had at the beginning. Either you sinned or your parents sinned, and the only reason you're blind is because of the bad things you've done in your life. 
By the way, Job and so many other places prove that that's not true. Sometimes it's just because of the fall of man, the sin that's in the world. It's not individual sin that someone has done. Look at this. You are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, don't don't rush by that. The man, when he was thrown out, didn't go looking for Jesus. When the man was thrown out and the religious leaders of that day, when all of the religions of that day didn't want to have anything to do with him, Jesus sought him out. Don't miss that. Jesus found him. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? That's a messianic title. Do you believe in the Messiah? Do you believe that God's going to send the anointed one? Who is he, sir, the man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And again, last phrase, and he worshipped him. That word is reserved only for those who are worshipping God. God's assignments provide an incredible choice. What are some of the choices? Here's three choices we need to make. Choose to place your trust in in Jesus Christ. Faith does not rest on a concept or an idea. Our faith is in a person. This man came into this thing with all of these preconceived ideas about about himself. You know, he wondered, wonder what I did. Why, Why am I blind? Why am I having to struggle? Why are my finances messed up? You may come today. Why am I struggling in my life? Why have I why have I had to go through this in my life? And the Lord says, wait a second. You're thinking about all of these things. Think about a person. The religious men took their stand on on preconceived ideas. This man took a stand on one thing. I met a man who changed my life. The arguments did not shake his faith. It, It clarified his position. It gave him a deeper appreciation of Jesus so that when he later encountered Jesus, he believed and worshiped him. He says he's Jesus' disciple. Who do you trust? I, I mean, you have to trust someone. Who do you trust today? I, I read an article by Diane Diamond in the Huffington Post. Uh, Lord, forgive me for reading the Huffington Post. But anyway, I, re- I read the Huffington Post, and this is the article that she posted, In Nothing Do We Trust. And Diane Diamond says that her faith in politics was shaken. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's long. But it says her faith in politics was shaken by John Edwards hiding his mistress. That's, that sh- shook her faith in politics. For the first time, she said, I don't know if I can... I can believe politicians. Her words, not mine. Her faith in the judicial system was shaken by judicial legislating, and yet the two examples she gave were where two conservative judges tried to follow the Constitution, but she says that's judicial legislating. Her faith in financial systems was shaken when she found out the the bonuses for CEOs meant that the average CEO, she said, earned $15 million last year, the average CEO. And all, all that I would say to that is, I believe a pastor should be considered the CEO of the church. That's all I'm, no, I'm just kidding, I'm just teasing. She says her faith in, in financial systems was shaken by the high pay, the high bonuses for CEOs. Her faith in education was shaken by poor funding and the myopic focus on tests in school. Her faith in sports was shaken by steroids and other banned substances. And here's how she ends the article. I guess I need a good kick in my faith. Any suggestions? I have never, ever, ever emailed someone who posted an article until she did this, and I emailed her. And let me give you my, my whole email, okay? 
Dear Diane, try having faith in someone worth trusting. Try Jesus Christ. And then I include some scriptures, and I say, respectfully yours, Pastor George Knight. Haven't heard back from her. Place your trust in Christ. Number two, choose to put everything on the line for Christ. Choose to put everything on the line for Jesus Christ. How much do we put on the line for Jesus Christ? Uh, I ran across this. Uh, this was an ad placed in the early 1900s. Ernest Shackleton was, put this, placed this ad in the newspaper. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, long hours, life expendable. That's how he advertised. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, long hours, life expendable. In other words, you may lose your life. Who would answer that? 15,000 men answered that ad that was in the New York Times, Chicago paper, uh, and across the nation. He was, going to the, he was trying to get to the South Pole to be the first one. 15,000 candidates. 15,000 a- answered it. 5,000 showed up at a, a day and time when he said he was going to do that. Helen Keller once said, life is either a daring adventure or nothing. Security does not exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole experience security. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than exposure when you're following the Lord. One more. A missionary wrote to David Livingston. David Livingston was a missionary who went to deep in the heart of Africa. And this is what they wrote. Have you found a good road to where you are? If you have found a good road, we want to know how to send other men to you. And David Livingston wrote back, If you have men who will come only if they know there's a good road to where I am, I don't want them. I want men who will come here even if there is no road at all. That's the people God is calling. The Lord says, Will you put everything on the line for Jesus Christ? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken into captivity. They were taken... And when they went into Babylon with with Daniel and others, they were there. And and at one point, Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to have this huge statue made of gold, and you have to bow down to the statue. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, no, 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 no. You don't understand, king. We can't do that. And he says, when the music starts, you just kneel and worship. It's okay. Just pretend your your shoe's untied. Go down and, you know, tie your shoe. They said, no. Look what they say in Daniel 3, 17 and 18. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But look at that next phrase. But even if he does not. We know that God can rescue us. We know that God can provide for us. We know that he can do all of these things. But here's where they put everything on the line. But if he does not, we'll still not serve you. We'll still not bow down. We'll still not worship you. They put it all on the line. Some years ago, I was reading a book, or Ir- Erwin McManus wrote a book about faith, and he made this statement, and when, he, when I read it, it cut me to the quick. It, it, it pierced my heart. This is what Erwin McManus said in his book. Write down everything you've ever attempted for God that was beyond your ability. Something the Lord directed you to do, but you knew that if he did not equip and empower you, you would fail miserably. Write it down. If you have nothing to write down, weep. What have you tried to do for the Lord that you knew that if he did not empower you, if he did not give you the provisions, you would fail miserably? And it broke my heart because I realized most of what I had tried to do was in my own power. Choose to put everything on the line for Jesus Christ.
The last one is choose to practice living by faith. Choose to practice living by faith. We talk about faith, but we do not, but, but do we live by faith? Do we live by faith? The first time I really experienced in a, in a three-dimensional and in, in a real-life situation like that was when I went to Hume Lake. Uh, Hume Lake has uh, what they call the High Ropes course or the High Ropes Adventure. They've changed the name of it over years. And they have some different things. One of them is you get on the edge of a cliff. They put you in this harness, and you come to the edge of the cliff, and you look down, and the cliff is, you know, depending on where you are, 35 to 40 feet straight down this cliff. And there's a couple of ways. One is you can learn to rappel down it, and that's kind of scary just to lean back and hold on the ropes and go down. But the other is what they call the screamer, and you, you, you hook up in this harness, and you just walk off the edge of the cliff 35, 40 feet straight down. And then they have this guy. Usually, you know, I'm, I'm six feet tall. I weigh 200 and some pounds. And so, yes, it's over 200. I, I was under 200 pounds when I was in seventh grade. The last time was under 200 pounds. And they have this guy, 114 pounds, that's on the rope that's holding you. I know he's got pulleys, but I'm thinking, get the two biggest guys you've got on the other end of that rope if I'm going to run off that. But that wasn't the one that really bugged me. They had a telephone pole about 35 feet tall, and they had these things on the side, like you climb the sides, you know, these, these things, and you climb to the top of it. And when you get to the top, you have to put your feet on it. They had a short one, then they had a tall one. And I said, I want to do the short one. And they said, well, real men do the tall one. So I did the tall one. And I got to the top. And I have huge feet, wide feet. And so I put my one foot on top of the telephone pole, and it took up the whole pole. I mean, the pole's not that big on the top. And you're supposed to stand on the top of this 35-foot telephone pole. And by the way, this thing's you know, weaving back and forth in the, with your weight and in the wind. And they said, put your other foot up there. I said, No. One foot's just, you know, and you're kind of like this, and you're kind of wobbling around. And he says, if you don't put the other foot up, you're going to, so I, I, I got both feet up there. And they said, now you see the trapeze above you? Jump. Yeah. We live by faith, not by sight. And I looked at the trapeze, and I said, there's no way, because you would have to bend down with your knees and then jump for all your worth. And there was no way that I could do it. I made some little feeble horrible jump. I didn't even get close. When I got down to the bottom, the kid said, gee, pastor, you got really close. You were only that far away. And I said, really? And I said, who else was that far away? And they said, two girls. <laughs> we live by faith and not by sight. If we're to experience God, we have to learn to walk with him to live by faith. If we can see clearly how something can be accomplished, faith is not really required. If we can see clearly how something can be accomplished, faith is not really required. We've been putting together some office furniture. We had a couple of desks that we needed to put together, and, and you know, they, gave, they come with instructions. What I like is the instructions where they just leave out one part. We noticed one of the books that they gave us, they just left a page out. It went from page 2 to page 6, so that meant 3, 4, 5, you know, whatever was gone in the middle, so 2 to 7, something like that. But we, lo- we lost several pages of instructions. Made it very interesting to try to put that together, but you still had the picture. It wasn't impossible. It was just annoying. The Lord says, I don't want you to do stuff that's just annoying. I want, you to, I, I want you to trust me to do something that's impossible. Will you live, practice living by faith? I'll close with this. It's my favorite story, probably of all time. John and Betty Stam were missionaries. They were called to China. Before the, the huge thing that had happened with co- the communists in China, they arrived at the end of November in uh, 1934. 
And by December 1st, I mean just within 10 days of them getting there, all of, of the communist uprising broke out and it was a horrible situation. They were attacked. And, and John wrote a, a note and sent it to the mission, China Inland Mission, December 6th, 1934. Dear brethren, my wife and baby and myself are today in the hands of communists in the city of Xinjia. Their demand is $20,000 for our release, a huge amount of money in 1934. All of our possessions and stores are in their hands, but we praise God for peace in our hearts and a meal tonight. God grant you wisdom in what you do and us fortitude, courage, and peace of heart. He is able. Oh. Did you get that? This guy's writing probably the last letter of his life, and he writes, God is able and a wonderful friend in such a time. Things happened so quickly this morning. We, they were in the city just a few hours after the ever-persistent rumors really became alarming so that we could not prepare to leave in time. We were just too late. The Lord bless and guide you. And as for us, may God be glorified, whether by life or by death. In him, John Stem. The day after the letter was written, their little baby was smuggled from the mission and given to some other friends that they knew and eventually smuggled out of the, the, the country. The day after he wrote the letter, they were stripped naked, walked through the streets. The people were forced to gather and watch as, as they were executed in the middle of town. On the back of the letter, John Stam had not been able to find just a clear piece of paper. He didn't have much time. On the back of the letter was Betty's favorite poem. She had mentioned it several times to friends. It was written by E.H. Hamilton. This is the poem, Afraid of What? To feel the Spirit's glad release, to pass from pain to perfect peace, the strife and strain of life to cease. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? Afraid to see my Savior's face, to hear His welcome, and to trace the glory gleam from wounds of grace? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart, darkness light, oh heaven's art, each wound of his a counterpart, afraid of that? Afraid of what? To do by death what life could not? Baptize with blood a stony plot till souls shall blossom from the spot? Afraid of that? John and Betty Stam only spent two weeks in China before they were killed. In 1935, the greatest amount of money that has ever been given to a single mission came into the China Inland Mission. In 1935, more people came to ask if they could be missionaries to the China Inland Mission than they had ever experienced in the history before or since. Today, I believe there are more Christians in China than there are in America because of John and Betty Stamp. To do by death what life could not, baptize with blood, a stony plot, till souls shall blossom from the spot. Afraid of that? We are called to a crisis of belief. What are we going to do? Are we going to trust him? Are we going to put it all on the line? Are we going to watch him do what only he can do? That's our choice. Let's pray. Father, you know each person that's here today. 
you know where they are. We come this Memorial Day, Father. It's a memorial not only to those who have fallen on our behalf in the military, but also, Father, it is a memorial remembering what you did at Calvary when you died on the cross for us. So today, Father, we ask you, as we come to this crossroads, as we come to many crossroads in our life, as we have to choose what we believe about you and and what we're going to do with that faith, Father, I just pray that each of us will come to you by faith and say, you are able. What an amazing God you are, Father. Thank you for loving us this much. Thank you for dying for us, for giving us new life in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.